Welcome to the Social Flight Live podcast, an audio version of our live show, hosted every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have a wonderful show for you this evening. AOPA President Mark Baker is here, and we are going to talk about all sorts of things that are coming in 2023 and the state of general aviation. There's a lot going on and a lot of very important topics in order to cover. We are in the season of education as it gets uh, colder for many of us in the, in the uh, upper climates here where it was snowing today. Uh, so uh, be sure to check out Social Flight's FAA learning system where you can get WINGS credits or AMT credits for just watching videos on demand. And in addition to that, if you are an AMP mechanic with an inspection authorization, your IA, then you can get your eight hours of education that's required for your renewal straight through Social Flight by watching our videos, taking a quick quiz, and it automatically prints your certificates and gets you qualification for that renewal. So it's a great opportunity to learn, to educate yourself, to get qualified and recertified uh, as a mechanic and an IA. Be sure to check that all that out. It's just there on socialflight.com. And tonight's broadcast is brought to us by UAvionics. UAvionics just has some unbelievable avionics. I am a huge fan. Their AV30 electronic flight instrument can do things that, that are uh, go with either a DG or can go with your attitude information, primary flight display. There's so much that it can do for such a low price. The AV20 is a smaller version. It does uh, all sorts of cool things. We're using both of those devices in that Mustang behind me. So uh, you can check that out. Their Tail Beacon X is a full diversity transponder with ADSB, Sky Beacon, Sky Sensor. Just check out UAVionics and you can see such uh, really wonderful things. Now, I'd like to introduce AOPA President Mark Baker with over 40 years and more than 10,000 flight hours in his logbook. Mark Baker truly understands the general aviation community that he serves at the helm of AOPA, the Aircraft Owner and Pilots Association. Mark's a commercial pilot with single and multi-engine land and seaplane ratings, rotorcraft rating, type ratings in the Cessna 500, the 525, as well as the DC-3. As president of AOPA, Mark's led groundbreaking efforts, including the basic med and protecting pilots uh, against ATC privatization, among so many other things. I am just thrilled that he is leading AOPA in the charge to protect general aviation and very proud to call him a friend. Please welcome to Social Flight Live, Mark Baker. How are you doing, Mark? Well, I'm doing pretty good, Jeff, and thanks for having me on this evening. I really do appreciate the time to share some thoughts about aviation. Uh, it's a good time in aviation, so let's go. It, it is. There's so many crazy things going on. I want to start with something, though, that you told me off the air to bring everyone in. You Okay, you have owned how many planes? It's a sickness, but over 100. Over 100 planes, and... One of the most iconic ones, my what probably one that, that touches my heart and my top, I don't know, three, four uh, of all of general aviation is the Beach Stagger Wing. And, and you have now added this to your bucket list? 
I have, Jeff. You know, I, I like you. Uh, saw that airplane is one of the most beautiful crafts ever built, designed in the early 30s by Walter Beach and Ted Wells. And and I've looked at that airplane, and I love the motor with the 985, which I've had on a Howard Beach 18. You know, I just think it's it's just one of those <laughs> beautiful sounds of all time. But it is uh, the art that brought me to that that form. Uh, so it's a 1944 airplane that's going through finishing up its pre-buy right now. But uh, I've been looking at these airplanes for better part of 10 years and finally said, I'm not getting younger. It might be time to get this thing done. So I found one that's an extraordinary and very low time airplane and got great history. So I'm, I'm anxious to uh, get it out of there and hopefully bring it to Southern Fun. Wow. Uh, do you, have you flown a, a Saturn wing before you decide to acquire one? Yeah, a little bit. You know, uh, I've, I've had the opportunity to fly a lot of airplanes and, uh, and having a Howard DGA, which is a very similar type model in terms of engine and kind of era, and then a Beach 18. So pretty familiar. I've also got a Beaver with a 985 on it as well. So I'm pretty familiar with the kind of the feel and the, and, and the sense of the engine and, the, and the, uh, the airplane. But the essence of the Staggerwing is unequal. I just, I just think it's a... Too cool not to have. No kidding. And and one of the most amazing things I I think I feel and, and love about that plane, it, by the way, it's so iconic and so gorgeous, at least in my opinion. It's our logo. So, uh, <laughs> so you're you're gonna wind up with social flight logo gear now because of your plane, but you like it or not. So <laughs> but oh, thank you. um what's amazing to me about it is not only is it kind of a gorgeous and, and artistic and, and, you know, a biplane, a classic biplane, but its performance and its technology are staggering. It seems to be the one biplane, the one aircraft that, that straddles almost like both eras of efficiency and modern of, with the old. It's so cool to read the book, you know, the Barnstormer and the Lady um, which is the story of Walter and Olive Ann Beach and coming out of uh, Travel Air, which was the most iconic airplane in the 20s, and coming into the Depression and having the, the um, desire with the designer, Ted Wells was a designer, to build this airplane, very expensive airplane, you know, call it twenty-five or $30,000 in the early 30s, and thinking, you know, is anybody going to buy it? The first person, company that bought it was Ethel, led, um, but uh, the fuel company, and uh, by the time they got to the war, they were selling hundreds of these things a year to, you know, movie stars, oil companies, you know, wealthy people. This was the Learjet of the 30s, and then the war broke out, and they built 400 of them for the Navy, um, and they built an airplane that is stout, can go land in any grass strip anywhere. They put them on floats originally in 37 and 38. Um, the airplane performs basically much like a Bonanza, uh, the Bonanza, which displaced it because it was $6,000 versus $25,000 in 1946. does the same speed, you know, goes the same distance. But they decided to, you know, take the smaller, you know, more efficient, uh, less costly airplane and displace their own great design. So the last ones, the G models were built in the late 40s or finished out the last 18 of them in the late 40s. It is a truly iconic airplane. I, you know, I consider myself a steward of this airplane. I hope it passes on to somebody else. There's, there's about 200 on the registry, something like that, maybe 50 or 60 that fly. So it's still pretty special. Uh, yeah. When you hear one, you know it. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and and the other thing you mentioned about it, which is so uh, wonderful, is that it's a story of a company really 
succeeding and doing the right thing, meaning that you mentioned that the bonanza is, that they came out with essentially, you know, made the staggering go away, uh, but they, they, they put themselves out of that market with another plane, which a lot of companies are hesitant to do. But what it worked, what it did for them is basically they were their own disruptor and it kept them in business, which of course they are in business with the bonanza to this day. So it's, it's an amazing story. I would encourage people to read the history of uh, the Beechcraft company because they did that. And frankly, it was all of Ann that gets most of the credit for that. Walter and Ted Wells designed the original product. Uh, Al Van ran the business and Walter died in 49. Um, so all of the bonanzas you think of today were hers and, and the King Air later on in life and Barron's and all that were, were her design and her approval to do that. I think well, there's one cute story that's really kind of fun to read in the late uh, 60s. Uh, Olivan um, was selling their first King Airs to General Motors. And General Motors did not want Beechcraft anywhere on the airplane at all. It was not acceptable for them to have a Beechcraft signature anywhere, including the instrumentation, airspeed, any of it had a bonanza that says Beechcraft everywhere. And so she did. She complied and delivered a couple of King Airs that were completely you know, green, if you will, or white with no markings of Beechcraft. A few years later, she ordered her first new Cadillac. She required them not to have Cadillac on it anywhere. <laughs> That's wild. I did not yeah. know that. That yeah. is wild. That's a fun story. So um, we're here, of course, to talk about the state of general aviation and the work that you've been doing, a lot of different things going on. Um, we had uh, Congressman Sam Graves on the show recently. And uh, one of the biggest things that was going on at the time, and of course is still a, a you know, a part of the process is the FAA reauthorization bill, which is this opportunity to affect so much change uh, in aviation. And of course, AOPA is a big part of that. Tell me a little bit about uh, what's happening in this world and, and what you see for, um, uh, for the coming uh, years. So Sam Graves has been a longtime friend, even well before my time at AOPA. I was a supporter of, of his and we've flown a lot together. And I'm really proud of the way he's kind of positioning the first general aviation bill that has ever been presented to Congress. And he's working very partisan. You know, Rick Larson, who is a congressman from uh, Seattle, the Democrat, has been at Sam's um, aviation events in Turkey, Missouri. And they're working very closely together to try and build a program that helps us reinvest in these 4,000 plus airports that the airlines don't use. Uh, we're, we're way behind in hangar building on these public use airports, uh, ramp building potentially where there's you know, maybe a monopoly FBO, ideas that we can help perpetuate the use and the reasons for general aviation safety, economy, and access uh, for this country. He is very involved in to try and kind of move the ball in the right direction and investing in GA. It's been a long time, and I think he's the, he, I know he is, the right guy to kind of bring that forth to this Congress. And I think we're going to see some really unique movements in the investment in GA. Mm-hmm. What would you say are the kind of like the, the top two or three items that that can change with this bill? So the, the, probably the biggest one is going to be, you know, getting these investments, whether they be hangers or taxiways, because we're probably around 25 percent short in, in hangers in this country. Now, some models are different than other models where it requires um, F, uh, FBO to build the hangers or in some cases, AIP money could be used for hangers or taxiways for general aviation. And that's what we'd like to see is have those choices be made by the individual airports, what best fits their needs. 
and but to have access to some of that capital. We consider that infrastructure capital to go into these airports that have been around for a long time. We're so blessed to have 5,000 public use airports in this country, but to put some money back to work because we are way behind in terms of you know the hangar program. Also, I think, you know, in some cases we've seen consolidations on FBOs. In some cases we don't need all the services that they provide at some of these airports. We'd like to have a public parking ramp space. May have to pay something for it, but to make a choice between uh, the private FBO choice uh, or parking somewhere else, I think they're the top two. And, you know, I think we can even see some, you know, some improvements in some of the basic med uh, which we've done really well with that. As you know, we've got 70,000 people that have qualified for that, uh, working really well. Could we expand that? I mean, there's some other ideas that are working there, and as well as this mosaic rule, getting that done. DPE reforms, you know, we're still at seven or 800 uh, designated pilot examiners. We should be at closer to 14, 1,500 again. With the growth in aviation we've seen, we're not moving fast enough to get these exams done in a yeah. affordable way. Yeah. Let's let's talk about those items for a minute. Now, the first one, when you're talking about hangars and you're talking about the the investment in the airports, I think that that's I think more important than a lot of people realize, because it ties to things. It even ties to things like insurance. We have such we have an insurance crisis. We think about you know aircraft kind of going down, and the the the, the big loud one is always oh it's always aircraft going down in liability. A lot of this is when storms, when weather, when other things come through. And we don't have the facilities to protect aircraft. And the numbers of aircraft we have in our fleet uh, compared to the number of new aircraft that we're building is is an extremely different number. And so the idea that we can't protect them because of that hangar shortage seems like it plays a big role. What are your thoughts on that? There's no question about it. You know, the, the value of an airplane, if you're lucky enough to have owned one over the last couple of years, has gone up significantly and make sure you've insured for the right value please because you know today these airplanes are very valuable and and you know in many of these airport models it requires some type of assistance to build these t-hangers they're owned by the airport sponsor or the, you know the the county or the city and they're there for a long period of time but they haven't had any any funds to really build out these hangers and, you know, you're looking at airplanes that start at $50,000 and go to a million dollars or sitting outside tied down. It makes no sense um, for all the long term. And these are long term projects. I mean, these hangers are going to be there for 30, 40 years. So we'd like to see some AIP money get freed up to be specifically uh, set for hangar development in these air- airports because at the end of the day, the sponsor owns these hangers. Yeah. Um, the other thing you mentioned or one of the other items that you mentioned there, of course, is also about about parking. I think a lot of pilots would agree that it, as it stands today, it's fairly outrageous that our money pays for a public airport and public use airport, and that there is no spot of any kind on many of them that you can simply park and walk out the gate without facing fees from a private business that happens to operate on that airport. What's the prospect of almost mandating or protecting something that allows that zero service option on a publicly funded airport. So it's a very important piece of this, and we don't want to be priced out of these access points in these markets. And in many cases, we don't need the services or the fuel that they provide. And God bless, they do a great job. Most SBOs do a really nice job. Um, but at some point in time, you know, you don't want to be in the way of the Gulf Stream coming in there. So give me a ramp that we can tie down our 172, in my case, a 185 or Supercode, 
and get out in and out of the gate and be secure. Now, there's only 400 of these airports that are used by the airline, so that's where the TSA issue becomes a real issue. But the rest of these airports really just need to have a protocol where they're identified, where is public transient parking. We're making big progress there around the transparency about the signing, where you can park. There's so many places that actually still have parking places, but they don't have any designated way to find out where it is. It's, it's crazy. Mm. So the, the, the sale guys, the state aviation directors are trying to work through the charting because actually they're the ones responsible, the states, uh, for where this public parking might already exist and where it doesn't just probably create some with the AIP money. It's going to be very important as we go in the future with access to these airports because we shouldn't give up our right to go to a public port. Is, is it a, is it a possibility to have it be part of authorization to be part of kind of a legislative thing to say, uh, assuming there's an assumption here that there is some room for it, uh, or at least a couple spots or something, but to say that if you're talking about a completely public publicly funded airport that you have to have a spot on there, that's not charged by the FBO. Yeah, it's our view that that is actually a legislative activity that makes sense for us. Now, I didn't say free. It might be $10 overnight. I don't know what the prices are going to be. The airlines figured this out a long time ago, by the way. Um, so they pay for $767, you know, sometimes some, uh, $200 or $300 a night to park an airplane that big on a ramp that's been provided by the taxpayers. Why shouldn't we have the same rights as um, general aviation to say, hey, we require a public spot? The equivalency would probably be 20 bucks, which is fine because you're only allowed to charge for the actual cost of that asphalt or concrete and its maintenance. That's it because there, it's already a public port. So we're just trying to get things done that the airlines did a long time ago. As with this consolidation that's happened, God bless. They do a good job. I don't care. Keep your own in your business model. But I want to have a place to park my little airplane that I don't need all the other stuff. And I want to just be there at a reasonable price. Um, one of the other things that, that you mentioned in your list has to do with uh, public uh, deep, you know, examiners, examiners of all different types, uh, DPEs, whether that be for designated ex examiners for pilots, uh, whether it be for mechanics, uh, even, uh, even AMEs, even examiners from a medical standpoint. Um, it, it seems to be that uh, we, we have this kind of challenging situation where the the rules that we have, and we discussed this a little bit with um, uh, with Sam as well, with Congressman um, uh, Graves. It seems to be we've got a bit of a challenge because uh, the FAA holds the reins uh, on creating these positions because they get to say if there's a need for for them. And in talking behind the scenes to many FAA folks. The answer there is, well, we're, we're not really saying, is there a need? What we're really answering is, uh, do we have the capacity or the will to manage more of it? And how do we reconcile these two things where on the surface, we've tried to create something that makes sense, right? We only want to make as many as there's a need. And then you prove, oh, there's an enormous need. And they say, yeah, but I don't want to manage that many people. <laughs> yeah, it is a little bit of a chicken and egg story but here's the here's the big numbers is in 1980 we all know was biggest year ever for pilot population growth which is about 50,000 ppls issued in 1980 we had about 1500 dpes uh, according to the faa back then and we've fallen down to about 700 dpes some of which are not particularly very active and it's very regional in terms of where the demand is 
But the reality is if we're headed back from 30, you know, we were down to 17,000 PPLs, private pilot licenses a few years ago. We're seeing 35, probably 40,000. We're going to head back to 50,000 PPLs being issued if we're going to come anywhere near filling this pilot shortage that exists for the airlines and others. So the reality is we need to be back north of 1,500 PP, uh, DPEs, designated pilot examiners, very soon. You know, they have to go to Oklahoma for a week or 10 days and get trained on how to do the mm-hmm. check the checker, check the CFI that has signed off this individual. And uh, if they can't figure out how to do this um, through um, the regulatory side, the FA, then we're going to have to come down and say, legislatively, you have to have a higher number. So I hate to go that way, to tell you the truth. I prefer to do that. But they're in charge of this area, and they haven't moved a dozen or two in the last five years in terms of the absolute number of DPs. It's unacceptable. Well, again, it, it covers all these things. And I mean, anecdotally, I, I have a, a, a very good friend of mine who is extraordinarily qualified beyond beyond anything people would want. He's been waiting for, I think, 20 years on the list and has never gotten the okay. Uh, I've personally been on the, the list on the mechanic side uh, for many, many years. It, it's something where a lot of very qualified people are, quote, on the list because they want to be able to do this. And their name's not coming up. It's not going to come up. So how do we move off? How do we get off that problem? So, you know, if you ask uh, the group that's been working on this as a uh, working group, they come up with recommendations. They said that they need, that the FAA needs more um, supervision for this level. Okay, so it's a funding issue. Is it five, seven, 10, 20 people? How many people is it? So the FAA now has to go back and tell us, what do you need for an allocation to be able to manage oversight and do a reasonably good job of making sure the checkers are doing the right job. And then we can react to this. But I think they've been stuck um, from a budget and all the other things. Um, but we've got to commit. And I think we're going to hear this from the either Congress or from the senior levels of the FAA. It's time to move the ball because it's crazy. We have qualified people that can be examiners. We have a unquestionable need that exists. And you can already see it from the old days of a couple hundred dollars to get PPL to a thousand or twelve hundred dollars. Supply and demand is out of of whack. And it's time for us to um, really push this hard. And it's unacceptable to say we'll study it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and it's even interesting. I mean, you said supply and demand is out of whack. It's this very strange situation where you have supply in terms of uh, qualified, qualified people who want to be in that role. So both ends of the spectrum, right? You have a, a large population of people who want to be pilots, who want to be mechanics, who want to be a lot of things. You you have a large, I believe, from what I've seen, a large population of people qualified who want to be examiners and help solve that problem. But we're missing what's in between the two. Can the FA reauthorization bill help solve this, or is there something yes. else? No, uh, we've we've tried to work through the working groups for too long, and I'm frustrated with that. It's time to make a law. Got it. Um, now, you you also mentioned, uh, I think it was probably your last item there, a basic med. Um, uh, and I, I want to start by saying Dr. Susan Northrup has been on the show, uh, FAA uh, Surgeon General. She's wonderful. She's, uh, I think, been very progressive. Uh, and... Uh, a little bit, unfortunately, it, it, very unfortunately, seems to be uh, in the news with some, uh, I think, perhaps unjustified fire coming on. Can you talk about what's happening at the moment having to do with her? Yeah, there's been some suggestion that she's not done a good job and, and I'm not going to go into the COVID vaccination or non-vaccinated kind of world. But, 
you know, are there more incapacitations uh, existing because of of uh, the FAA trying to do anything to cover it up or suggest that the vaccination deal? The facts are, uh, general aviation just comes through the safest two years in in history. We've got hundreds of thousands of pilots flying, you know, 20 some plus million hours a year, and incapacitations are still in the one or two percent if they can be detected, kind of thing. So I think the world of Susan Northrop, she's done the best job I can tell you from any uh, FAA uh, air surgeon that I've worked with for the last 10 years. She is an air, you know, private pilot and active GA pilot herself. She always picks up the phone if I need to, you know, put a phone call and or send something. Uh, she's very diligent about doing the right thing. So I tend to be, uh, when FAA is doing really good things, she does really good things. It's not perfect. We always want to push further, get more more things done. But she's done a fantastic job, and she's aligned her team to try and get and serve the general aviation public in a, in a better way. Still opportunity, <clears throat> but I'm telling you what, uh, the best I've ever worked with. Yeah, and, and, you know, one of the things is if there's one thing, if you asked me, you know, what one of her biggest accomplishments has been, it's been transparency. It's been the fact that that she came in and immediately said, well, if, if we can't fix right away uh, the process of this, the speed of medicals coming through, if anything else, well, we can sure report on exactly where things are. And and so she established that, trans, that kind of transparency of things. Um, obviously, she's a GA pilot, flies a steerman. She just seems to get it. And I hate to see, uh, you know, anything coming out saying, oh, well, she's hiding stuff. I, I, I it's hard for me to imagine that's the case. No, I, I would tell you that she's um, uh, terrific. And, you know, we should be proud to have her uh, as leading our, you know, our aviation group through the medical world. And uh, I think she's trying to make a difference and trying to do the right thing, minimize risk and, and create less cost and, and complexity in the medical where it's possible. And she's been a big supporter of making adjustments of the basic med. She, uh, she has seen the facts that, there is no safety difference between basic med and the third-class medical, zero difference. So how do we accelerate some of those positive things that we've learned over the last half a dozen years of having basic med and look at all the asking statistics and saying there is no difference? So how do we make this even easier for other people to apply, use this alternative form of medical where it may be a, a higher weight, you know, different in, in terms of you know, altitude, things that really were kind of um, – cobbled together, if you will, initially to get people comfortable. Well, now we have evidence that we're in a good place to expand it. Right. And you mentioned that I think the key word, which seems to drive uh, everything that has to do with medical, uh, and that's this, this concept of, of incapacitation. Uh, it seems that that is what drives everything, that, that there's this idea that if your doctor with basic med versus an, uh, an AME or whether it's certain meds or certain things, all of a sudden, that's what we're all afraid of is, or the world outside of our community, is the idea that there's going to be an incapacitation and that incapacitation is going to have devastating consequences in most cases beyond the individual pilot uh, because otherwise we wouldn't care as much as we do, right? It would be more like driving. So everyone seems to be worried that we're going to have a snowball effect of many people dying at the hands of a single pilot becoming incapacitated. And you mentioned, I mean, what's the evidence that backs any of this up? Because we don't hear about it except for the 
big news story every once in a millennia. Well, Jeff, it is one of those things. It's it's like the comet that's eventually going to hit the Earth. You know, we don't know when, but there probably will be one. You know, in another million years or two million years. The facts are, incapacitation um, is less than two percent of all access at, at very best, and, and has been that way ever since the beginning of the medical. I don't care by the way. I want to be clear about that number. You, you, when you say 1%, we're not talking about 1% of flight hours. We're not talking about 1% of flights. Let's be really clear. You're talking about, once we're talking about crashes and fatalities, what percentage of that is incapacitation? After coming through the safest year ever, uh, again, for this, you know, continue to prove unsafety to the lowest level of fatalities ever in aviation by hours flown, is 1% of all the accidents that we can identify maybe, uh, that could have had an incapacitation issue. Uh, by the way, which, you know, people can have perfect medicals at the Mayo or any of these big clinics and still walk out the door and fall over. You know, predictable incapacitation, pretty much zero. But so, that, so that's the other thing, uh, which is, uh, let me make sure I understand what you just said, because that's even more important, which is, so now we get ourselves 1% of accidents were down to, uh, or some number like that incapacitations. Now we have to look at that and say, of those, what was predictable and regulation would have changed? In our view, nearly none. If not none, nearly none. I mean, mm-hmm. just that kind of level. Uh, and pilots do their best job. And that's why we've seen this, the safety where we're at, and the same as the third class medical and the basic med, Pilots do the best job of judging their ability to fly every day. Not some doctor that you saw 18 months ago or 24 months ago uh, that has no ability to forecast what you're going to feel like in a week or six weeks or 12 weeks. So we want to work with our doctors to make sure we understand all the implications of all the things as we get older and, and have different you know issues in life. But at the end of the day, the number one person that can identify a health issue is yourself. That's it. Right. Well, I mean, you've done some wonderful work with a basic med. I'm an enormous, enormous fan of it. And it seems like we're moving, we're moving closer. I mean, the, when I think about it in the way that you just described it, there's basically kind of almost three levels of you've got the older model or the pre-existing and what, with what still exists as a model with AMEs for the traditional medical route. And in those cases, you're going and you're visiting a doctor that's almost I don't want to, I don't know if that's not really the right word to say, but it's almost adversarial. You only want to give them as much information as necessary to get your medical. It's not really collaborative about like, how are you feeling and can we help your health? And moving to basic med, you're now you're getting a form signed by someone who you're working with on a more regular basis, who's known you or who's doing your medical and is also part of keeping you healthy. And then you've got the pilot side you just mentioned of, you know, you know, you really know yourself. And that's what you're using every day when you fly. Yeah, for those that haven't gone on the uh, AOPA website and just taken the, the test uh, for basic med, which is required every 24 months, uh, you'll learn more about your physiology and the challenges and what works than you've ever done through a third-class medical. I'm just telling you that, and I'll do respect for all the AMEs, and I have a lot of good friends that are AMEs. You know, most of the time that they go to get their AME is to figure out how to do the paperwork in Oklahoma City. It's not to make it send you to the moon. And they do a great job generally. But the amount of time that you spend actually on the uh, the course that talks about 
you know, how do you take prescriptions? How do you feel about after this or after that? Uh, that course is free. It's fantastic. And it, and it helps you really understand all the medical complications you might have as, as we all have different issues at different times, stress and all. So I really am a big believer that the basic med actually helps you understand your medical condition better than a third class medical. Mm-hmm. One of the things that uh, I'm very passionate about having to do with the, the medical side of things is that uh, is this idea that if we move a little bit more away from the uh, kind of Superman uh, uh, view that everyone has to 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 hold a medical, uh, you have to be the perfect specimen, perfect health, perfect everything, never have been depressed, never have had a problem, never have had to talk to a therapist, never have had a problem that you've recovered from, whatever uh, that may be, um, or a, a heart condition, cardiac, something that you've come past then that leads more to a world of people trying to hide that and, and, or not seek treatment for that. That doesn't seem as safe as in a, as a world where we make it easier to get back in the cockpit throughout all these things, as long as you're doing the right thing and right people uh, and the right people uh, together really feel like you're okay to fly. How can we move further? We've made some great strides with basic med, but how can we move further down that path? Well, they- it is a real opportunity. I'm going to tell you, Jeff, a side story. One of the uh, aviation events a couple of years ago, two guys approached me and said, you know, um, had we had basic med when my dad was alive, he'd still be alive. He had his heart issues. He had all those issues from his doctor to pass, you know, just because he wanted to fly, wanted to fly, wanted to fly. And ultimately he died. If he had been honest with sharing some of his conditions, he probably would have gotten a stint, done a special issuance, and probably been just fine today. Um, and that's what I believe that the basic med has really done is made you work with your personal physician or, and say, what do I really need to do to stay healthy? We all need to do the right thing and feel capable of flying. So I think the opportunities to go further with this are, you know, we're working with ICAO right now to make this an international standard because it really should be another way to fly privately, not for hire, um, around the world. And I think it's a real big opportunity to do that. We now have the evidence of a half a dozen years of really good safety. So I want to thank all members and all of you that are flying basic med for doing the right thing, making the right decisions every day. Because I think that's what pilots really do. They make decisions every day, every minute of flight. And by keeping ourselves safe, we've proven that some doctor in the, in the AME world or somebody that's reviewing your case in Oklahoma City may not be the best reviewer. You are. Right. That, that definitely makes a lot of sense. You, you mentioned with the ICAO side of things. So that brings something, of course, I'm, you know, being here outside of Boston, uh, I'm close to Canada. Well, basic med has, uh, you know, is not a thing you can fly in Canada with. Um, what do you think is going to be the first domino of the fall? Are we going to figure something out with Canada or are we going to, or is ICAO going to be our answer? <laughs> you know, Jeff, I, I, I wish I could tell you that Canada is really frustrating to us because the evidence is clear. They have a big aviation need, tourism need, and uh, they're great, you know, great neighbor for the U.S., Canada. Uh, and we've been successful, as you know, in Mexico and Bahamas and a few other countries in the Caribbean uh, to be able to fly your, your basic med. And, and the U.S., I think, supports it uh, well. I think it's probably going to come through ICAO as an international standard faster than the Canadians have done. And so we're in our fifth year of pitching and proposing in Montreal. Uh, <laughs> it is so slow. I mean, every time You've it, got a lot uh, of patience, my friend. 
Well, I actually don't. Fortunately, I have people that work in Ethiopia that are good. Uh, but it's, you know, it's a division of the UN, uh, and, and they, they plan meetings to plan meetings to plan meetings to plan the meeting. So it takes a long time. But we are, so far, successfully continuing to move the ball through ICAO. So and I do believe that Canada will accept the minute it's approved by ICAO. Canada will approve it. And uh, I know this is a loaded question. Is it even, is, is, is there even a, is there even a remote range of, of how many years we're talking about before uh, basic med pilots in the, in the, in the, in the you know, anywhere in Canada can use it to fly in? I actually thought, the, the, you know, 23 would be the year of getting through ICAO. It's probably another 18 months, but it's not long. I mean, not 10 years. It's, it's in the next couple of years. I believe ICAO will react and, and get it uh, accepted worldwide, which is, really? um, yeah. With all yeah. member states. So you're, you're kind of like, uh, on, I wouldn't say on record, but, but kind of saying, let's, let's even stretch it out and say, you think within the next t- two years. Yeah, I think that, that we'll that's see. right. It, you know, betting on government and timelines are never a smart bet, but uh, we've been working this a long time and, and the team has been going, and so far we don't have any real resistors because the evidence is so clear. So uh, I, I do think we'll get a pretty good shot where it goes really slow. And we don't need another COVID to slow things down where they didn't have any meetings for two years. Because I really thought we'd be done by now. Had we not had COVID, I really think we'd have been done by now. But because of the, the interruption and having meetings, um, it, it really slows down. But I think we, we, we don't have any significant attractors. We have a lot of supporters. Yeah. Um, let's switch subjects for a moment, talk a little bit about some other challenges that people are facing right now. One of them, of course, with an aging pilot population is the ability to get insurance. Um, what, what do you see happening on that horizon? What's the, re- what's the real cause of it? Because I don't hear of, again, we're, we came from talking about pilot incapacitation and that that's not really doing, causing a whole bunch of things. So it's not like I've heard oh, the minute someone turns 71, they auger in, and that's why we don't want to insure them. What's, what's going on? Because so many people cannot get insurance uh, uh, once they pass certain birthday. Yeah, it, and you know, we spent a lot of time in the last like, three or four years, and, and uh, part of it is, um, there isn't really good statistics on it, by the way, but the reality is we can show, because we follow every fatal accident or of that type. And there is no correlation with age and fatal accidents, zero. Um, so there isn't a reason to do that. Uh, but there is, and we've been given lots of information about gear ups, starting with the tow bar on, banging into a hangar. Uh, there is a correlation. As people age, uh, they're having some of these uh, ground um, claims. And, you know, we think that could be answered potentially with um, different deductibles or choices. We also have seen a couple of entrants that are hopefully going to enter the insurance market at the uh, sometime here in 23. They're going to be using kind of black boxes, much like a TBM does today, which is tracking your approaches and your speeds and your flight patterns. Are you really flying 80 or hundred hours a year? Are you really current? And if you'll sign up for that, you'll be able to get insurance with no age limit. Now, this is just getting started. It hasn't really become commercialized or widely available yet, but there are a couple of new entrants. They're going to do it based on a risk-based assessment. I don't like Big Brother myself, but on the other hand, if it means I'm going to get insurance when I'm 75 or 79, I'll probably do it um, because that's the choice. I think the other thing from a cost perspective, you know, it's been suggested for a number of years from the underwriters that having a no interest rate kind of market 
it was harder on them to have their liquidity because they required to have a certain percentage of their of their uh, assets liquid, but there was no return on that because there was no interest that was you know secured. With interest rates going up, it may be I'm hopeful one of the offsets that comes back into insurance rate rates and rating uh, because they'll have more liquidity with a return on it um, before they pay up. Because I come back to the number one statistic, which is we're the safest general aviation's ever been, ever. Mm-hmm. And so insurance availability and rates should reflect that at some point in time. Yeah. It's it's interesting that you mentioned deductibles because that seems to be a, an enormous difference between the aviation insurance market and many other insurance markets that are out there. And I've never understood that. I, even when my own uh, insurance renewed and, and as everybody's does skyrockets, I asked them, okay, so what if I, you know, dramatically increase the deductible? And their answer is, yeah, that doesn't change anything. And we don't even do that. Uh, it, it, most insurers that I have spoke to, and, and again, it's anecdotal, you may have a completely different experience or, or can enlighten us, um, don't use that as, a, as much of a tool in our market to change rates. Even if instead of a $500 deductible, you were saying, hey, I'll sign up for $10,000 deductible. Uh, they say, yeah. we don't care. Yeah, I think uh, we're starting to see a fair amount of that on the retractable market. Um, where because a Bonanza or a Mooney year up landing is a hundred thousand dollar issue today. And so some of that should be maybe a, a bigger sharing. And so we're starting to see a number of underwriters look at that because uh, that's number, one of the higher um, claims is a gear up landing on a retractable geared airplane. And, you know, for a three or $4,000 premium, you get a hundred thousand dollar exposure. No, you know, there's no personal injury generally on that, but that's a pretty big, hit for a relatively small number of premium I'm talking about. So is there a bigger sharing that can be done in some of the retractable markets? And I think that answer is probably yes. Makes sense. Definitely. So um, you've, you've mentioned safety a couple of times. This, tell me about 2023 and, and what's happened because the flight hours are back up uh, from pandemic levels, things like that. This is an area that we can celebrate uh, as I understand it. Um, tell me what's, what's really happened. So, you know, uh, pre-pandemic, we're around 20 million flight hours as measured in general aviation activity. Uh, last year, the federal year ended in October, was about almost 26 million flight hours. So up a lot. Yeah. Uh, we all know people buying 172s or doing flight training, which frankly, which Richard and I were kind of concerned about. You got a lot of new pilots coming into a new environment. You know, which, which direction was this needle going to go? And in fact, it went down. Our, our fatal accidents is at the lowest level ever recorded in the last two years. Uh, based on the number of flight hours, actually, you know, we're down to 250 or 60 um, unfortunate uh, fatal accidents, which still can be better. But we're, you know, 400 people lost their lives in aviation. We don't want anybody to lose their life in aviation. But if you go back 20 years ago, that's one third of where we were just 20 years ago. I'm not making excuses for it but it shows real positive direction. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, if you look at, you know, what's happened in the last 20 years, people are, our views up on our safety stuff are eight or 9 million views on our safety stuff a year. Um, autopilots, GPSs, you know, electronic flight bags are so much better today uh, in terms of situation awareness, CFIT, all the things that can cause, you know, problems have gotten better. Our technology is better today, and we've got a more diligent set of pilots that are looking at all that information. So it's it's very encouraging. Still a ways to go, but it's really important to see that you know 
hopefully we'll, you know, someday we'll never be on news at 11. What, do you attribute that to technology? Do you think people are, are doing a lot more education themselves? Is it the simulators? What, I mean, is it just everything all together? What in the world makes this happen? Especially when I think a lot of people were worried that coming out of the pandemic where people were flying a lot less, we'd actually see a spike because of all the rustiness. We sure were, you know, but it was really interesting, you know, um, our views on our safety stuff, as you know, say, you know, anything we do there is free because we want people to access it. Went from, you know, three or four million views on a YouTube to 12 million views because people had time and they looked at everything, sometimes several times. Um, but we were, we were tracking that in, in the and then early, the early analysis stuff that Richard does about, you know, what's going on, what happened in this last accident. People have been following that in hundreds of thousands of views within the first 24 hours. And people have a curiosity and the flying, you know, public trying to be as smart, as educated as they can when the neighbor asks or the relative asks what happened. And we, we try to not be way ahead of the NTSB. We very much support their work. But look, no share what we know and why and possibilities that go on. And I think people consumption, I've always been a big advocate of reading everything you do and what went wrong, because I don't want to be that, you know, next story. Uh, we all can make mistakes, human, human nature, but we can learn a lot about what happened. And I think the consumption of that has really helped us. And clearly the technology today is so much better than the KNS 80 or the VOR to VOR, ADF to ADF, uh, my era. Uh, when you go direct to and you've got traffic on there, one of the great things people give a lot of crap about uh, NextGen, and I've been on that <laughs> advisory committee for 10 years, but having traffic, real traffic in your cockpit and real weather in your cockpit, it's a really good idea. And, you know, couldn't have been imagined 15 or 20 years ago. No, and and it's not, and it's something we, we uniquely benefit from here in the United States. You don't even... You don't even right. have it in Canada. You, you know, this is, this is our unique benefit of being able to, to have our ADSB system give us weather that's uh, right. in addition to traffic. So clearly that's, uh, that's a great benefit. Um, the, uh, an, another uh, thing I did want to touch on here, uh, though, with kind of this whole market, and when we talk about, you mentioned with insurance costs, that, of course, uh, aircraft values are going up. Um, I you know, both you and I are very vested uh, people in the future of general aviation. I think that's that that drives yes, what we do every day. And it might be great for a, a person who owns an aircraft to watch it go up in value and be able to, you know, maybe someday cash in on that value. But it doesn't make me smile to know that the that the my aircraft's gone up in value because it means it's so much harder for everybody else. And I don't think it supports where aviation needs to go. What, what needs to happen to make it so more people can own aircraft, which includes not just the average person, as, as, but it supports businesses, it supports flight schools, it supports everything when someone, and, and more hours, when someone can afford a plane. It's a really important question, Jeff, because you know, we're basically playing with these same 200 and some thousand plus airplanes for most of our lives, and, you know, peaked out maybe at 350, it's come down, started to grow back a little bit. And, you know, kind of the entry points are pretty steep. Uh, or there's been some real successes, which we shouldn't deny. I mean, whether it's a Ashen Flyer, the RV-12, a Slang, if there's a few airplanes, some constrained by this, you know, LSA rule, which I believe um, we're going to see the mosaic 
um, rulemaking hopefully this summer. Um, and got some good reason to believe that'll come out. Um, that would, you know, enlarge the, the, the envelope of the size of uh, what considered to be that kind of aircraft, which I'm very supportive of. But so you've got some innovators out there that are trying to create $100,000 airplanes uh, at points of entry that are pretty good little airplanes. But then just like everything else you saw in the, in the automotive world or anything else, supply chain, they can't get the motors fast enough. They can't get the wheels fast enough. They can't get the brakes fast enough. But none of these problems, these people have a problem selling uh, $100,000 airplanes. They have a hard time building $100,000 airplanes because they can't get the products. So I, I think that the, this market has, and this is part I'm very encouraged about, with flight hours up as much as they are, values up as much as they are, uh, it's the mother of invention. There's a need. And I think you're going to see capital move into this market because, you know, aviation, as we all know, it's gone through cycles. But this looks like more sustainable. Uh, you've probably read that as well as I have, that, you know, people have gotten on to general aviation in a way that they're not letting go this time because um, they're not doing it for a flippant way. It's transportation for business. It's transportation and recreation. And it's just darn fun on top of the airline need to train a lot of people to fly. So, we have a confluence of three or four factors that are saying there's a huge market here. And that's why you saw the price of a 172 more than double over the last 24 months, um, which is good in one sense, but it's, it's proven that the market is resilient and in, in, in very high demand. So I'm actually encouraged, well, momentarily, there isn't any product that answers that solution. I think that uh, we're in a place today between Mosaic coming on board, um, Supply chain is ultimately figuring out some of its, you know, ways to build enough motors for these guys to build enough of these airplanes. Because uh, the demand is, as you know, most of the airplane manufacturers are out two, three, four, five years in in build out. And, you know, it's exciting, but, you know, their flex up might be 20% when the market says, I really want 500% more mm-hmm. aircraft available at hundred dollars to $200,000. So I, I'm actually uh, thinking that we're on the eve of a long-term upswing and you'll see more entrance because the demand's on. You know, our demand has been a thousand airplanes a year for the last 20 years. Right now, if you had 5,000 airplanes, they'd all be sold. Right. You know, the, if we look at the avionics world, it was, it seems like it was regulation that changed that had a massive impact on all sorts of players being able to then come out with uh, electronic flight instruments and all sorts of other things because the bar changed, the bar went down and it's almost like the FA finally yielded and said, we're not just going to, you know, say that a vacuum pump is the best thing since sliced bread. We're finally going to allow people to uh, be able to afford to bring products into the market. It, do you see anything that could do that for the airplane as a whole, which, which has always been a brutal thing to certify? Because as you mentioned, it seems like the market is awfully poised that if someone can create the Volkswagen of the skies and pump out a ton of them at a reasonable price, that the metrics would actually work. The question is, could they ever get it certified? Well, I think Mosaic is a big part of the first part of that change and to say, if it's a non-commercial airplane, we should be thinking about this a lot different. You know, if you're not taking passengers for hire and flight training is not passengers for hire, um, we should be thinking about this market different. Why shouldn't a 172 go through the same Hertz testing as an Airbus, you know, from a lightning perspective? And I think there are some really good proponents within the FAA that are really working through this. It's been way too long. It got shelved for a while, COVID and all the other stuff. But I'm pretty optimistic you're going to see uh, 
big movement there that's going to help us recognize that there are two and four passenger airplanes that, you know, really for transportation, safe, more safe than the current LSA route because you get weight is a positive in many cases. Propulsion may be totally piston and maybe some hybrid that comes into the market because of, uh, of that propulsion that could evolve that we've learned out of eVTOL. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I'm, boy, oh boy, I'll tell you what, Jeff, I'm, I'm probably more excited about what I see in the next three to five years than I saw in the last five years in terms of propulsion, uh, new activity, demand, and, you know, the excitement in aviation. I, for my 45 years I've been flying, I hadn't been as high as it is now. Wow. That's fantastic. And and speaking of that excitement, let's talk about building pilots uh, as kind of our last item for the evening. And that is, you know, you've got the You Can Fly initiative and building pilot communities. Tell me about what AOPA is doing moving forward and in, in, in how we fill this, this need uh, for pilots. Something I'm very proud of is AOPA started seven years ago looking at things called You Can Fly and had a couple of significant donors that said, if you can build this, we support it. And now today, including Textron and Williams Engines and lots of individual donors, still provide high school curriculum free to now 400 high schools this fall, last fall, with 15,000 young people taking this class, uh, classes from ninth to the 12th grade, which give them pathways to become either pilot, engineer, whatever it is, uh, maintenance uh, individual in aviation. The demand in you know, Oklahoma being our number one state, we've got 60 high schools in Oklahoma that 85 colleges and universities give you credit for. So you can save a year of tuition by taking this program, which we provide to these high schools for free. We have to teach the teacher. And uh, almost 100% of these schools that did last year signed up again this year. The kids are just, it's done, done it. These kids want to be in aviation. You know, 10 years ago, I had so many people tell me that, you know, kids don't care about aviation. They just want to do this or that. Other thing. We didn't get many pathways. We didn't have any ways to find a way to get from the ninth grade into a, a career in aviation. We will be someday in 2,500 high 10% of our high schools in this country is my goal. And um, I'm pretty excited about this because it proves that kids care about aviation. They're going into the military. They're going into the airline, GA, engineering, doesn't matter. And that's what we want is aviation stands tall in the careers that kids can choose and they just got to know about it. They got to see the pathways. And that's what this curriculum does. That's fantastic. And how do people find out information about the You Can Fly? I mean, I'm sure there's going to be either people who are who are, who are uh, teachers uh, uh, watching the show right now or people who uh, uh, certainly know some. Just go to the AOPA.org website and click on it and You Can Fly. It'll take you through there and how do you become a high school, how do you become a sponsor. And by the way, if you happen to be in that neighborhood, these kids want to come out and see your airplane. They want to touch your airplane. They want to hear about how you fly. You can help these uh, these teachers teach better. So it's been a sort of wonderful program. And uh, EA works with us around their chapters to kind of get the kids out to the airport. It's been a probably the most significant thing that I've done with my tenure today. Okay. That's that's wonderful. I love the program. I've seen the materials. It, it's it's absolutely fantastic. Um, the 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 other thing that that I, I'm very curious about before we run out of time is uh, we also seem to have an opportunity for people when they reach a, a point in their life where they they finally have the 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 maybe it's the house maybe the family starts to come together and. They're, they've never been exposed to flying, but they now have some disposable income. 
what do we do about this group? This seems to be in some way sort of the forgotten group. Uh, I don't know that they're forgotten, but we we haven't. It's so easy to wrap your arms around kids programs. Um, but what do we do for this group? So we have this program called the AFTA, which is a you know iPad or laptop or um, program where how do you become a better pilot faster? You know, because it's, it's frustrating me that you know the average PPL is now you know north of seventy some hours, and you know my day, your day, maybe uh, 40 hours and a half. Are you ready to go take your, uh, your, your test and become a private pilot license? And, yeah. We were uh, always, when, when in our day, right. We were always racing against that limit. You looked at it like that Chinese restaurant menu, one from column A, two from yep. column B, yep. you mapped it all out. I could do all, okay, I can get this done in 41.3 hours. <laughs> exactly. And you know, this after program works for really well for people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s potentially to help them understand where they are in their flight training, working with their flight instructor and scoring every flight. And, you know, we've seen a really nice adoption at, at that level individual that says, I want to figure out where I'm at. I want to, you know, this just to see if I tell me, I want to know where I'm at. If I change the advice, I want to know where I'm at. So we find some of those folks, by the way, to be our best members because they, they love our safety stuff. They love what we can do to help them save money on the, uh, time to get their PPL and then induce them to the flying club because they have the money to go play the game. And so we like to invite everybody in the aviation that has interest. How do you think we, we can do a better job of reaching out of our own mailing list and our own world of pilots? How do we become the, the, you know, on, on the shelf of the average magazine place or how do we get to people so that we start bringing them into the fold? That's a really question I've tried to figure out myself. That's a really good one because I don't have that answer. And we're, you know, looking to to work with some agencies and we'll be spending a day or so with a couple of them right now uh, or two to try and figure out how do we reach the people that always said one of these days, but never connected the dot. You know, and we all run across them. Yeah, I've always wanted to become a pilot. Well, here. And but they don't understand the access points, which I think AOP does a great job if you, you know, tap in, you know learn to fly, we come up pretty high, and then we can help you get directed. And, you know, some of the flight schools do a really good job, some are okay, and some are not so much. But we have to help them rank order themselves from the students. We got I don't know, eight or 9,000 inputs last year from which flight schools are really doing a nice job and which ones might want to learn a little bit from some of their peers. Because yeah. we've got to make sure, you still have 70, 80% of the people that take flying lessons that bail out. Well, well, we, we don't usually take any comments uh, from, from the, the, the audience during the show, even though people type things in. It guides our discussion a little bit. But I'm going to say that a good, good friend of ours, Brian Schiff, just typed in Super Bowl commercial. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Say hi, Brian. <laughs> so maybe we'll, maybe we'll put a fund together to make that one happen and, uh, and put GA right on the, right on the yeah. map of, of everybody at the halftime show. <laughs> Uh, we'll take his first donation to make that happen. Exactly. Well, Mark, thank you so much for taking time uh, to join us here on Social Flight Live. It's been incredibly informative. Again, I, I am so, so thankful for the work that you're doing with AOPA, with all these efforts to help us, and personally for your friendship. I've really appreciated uh, everything that you've done. Thanks, Jeff. You have a great program. Good luck to you. Absolutely. Thank you, and good night. Be sure, of course, to like us, subscribe, and be part of the Social Flight family. And until next time, I wish you all blue skies.